They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Yeah, the whole breakfast thing was like just their way of saying, eat a d-. Welcome to the Juan on Juan podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. The law assigned today directs new funds and new focus to the task of collecting vital intelligence on terrorist threats and on weapons of mass production. I know what's going down, sir. Sound scientists in the motherfucking house. Sound scientists, motherfuckers, is DJ free. We're uh, conscious of uh, of. Uh, Folks flying, you know, giving lists of people flying into our country and matching them now with a much improved database. See, without the tax relief package, there would have been a deficit, but there wouldn't have been the commensurate kick to our economy that occurred as a result of the tax relief. Some of the other members of the crew are here as well. Where are they, Robbie? Where are the members of your crew? Bienvenidos a otro episodio de Juan on Juan. Hoy estamos con mi hermano mexicano, Esoteric Eddie. ¿Cómo estás, vato? Uh, what is it, cabrón? What's up, bro? <laughs> oye, oye, ¿qué pasa? Oh man, it's been a minute, bro. So what's up with you? You're doing good. You're you're hanging in there. You know this, these esoteric studies that you're in. How 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 have they been treating you, bro? Absolutely, man. Good to be here. Good to see you. Shout out to everybody listening. Repping my new esoteric Eddie hat. That's fresh. Yep, yep, yep. Where do you got those? Where can people find you, bro? Uh, you can find me at Instagram esoteric Eddie. YouTube, Esoteric Eddie TV, and you can find my merch and books at EsotericEddie.com. But yeah, man, been keeping it up and working on a bunch of stuff. 
just dropped my recent one-hour-long documentary that we're going to cover tonight on the Committee of 300 and the timeline of the modern globalist philosophy. And uh, wrapping up my third book right now, which will be coming out in April, so I'm sure I'll be back to talk about that. Nice. I'm about to cop this shirt, this this hat. Hold on. You got the black one? Yeah, yeah. I got the blacks on there and different colors. I think I'm going to get the khaki one. That one's tight. The brown khaki. We're, That's we're... fresh. Right, I'm going to put it in my car. Yeah, bro. So I have... I've never heard of what we're going to be talking about. And you were like, you hit me on and you and I were talking. You were like, oh, let's do something soon. You're like, oh, I'm gonna, let's do it on this. I'm like, okay. I don't know what it is. So here I am. I am at your mercy, Esoteric Eddie. I am here to learn. I am opening my mind. And I encourage everybody listening to open up their mind too, but not so much as to where your brain falls out. And yeah, bro, take it away, man. Where are we going to start with this? For sure, for sure. So let me get this presentation going on the screen share. Let me know when you want me to bring it up. I don't want to show them your furry porn because I see some stuff going on there. But <laughs> Shit. Yeah, go ahead and bring it up. Um, let me see. Uh-oh. Is it, Uh-oh. Is, it, is it up right now? Yeah, it's all bring up the... Yeah, there you go. There you go. Perfect. Cool. It's kind of confusing because I can't see us. <laughs> But you can just see the PowerPoint, right? That's all you see? Yeah. Wh- why can't you see us? You should be able to see us on the side, bro. <laughs> oh, shit. But then you're going to see us on the side, right? No. What do you... Bro, what did you do? Did you break it? <laughs> I have no idea, man. How many screens do you have? I only have one screen, dude. Oh, that's why. Okay, okay. Yeah, do you want to share it with me and then I pull it up? That way you can still see us? Yeah. Yeah, I want to be able to see us, so... You just email it to me real quick and I'll upload the file because that way you oh, can, shit. I got freaking five screens over here, bro. Come on, man. You got to get on that esoteric <laughs> freaking, uh, you know, the, the, the levels, son, there's levels to this. Multi-dimensionals. I'm one dimensional, bro. One track. <laughs> so what is, can you reveal to us what your next book is going to be about, bro? Is it going to be about this topic that we're going to be talking about today? Uh, no, my next book is going to be. Um, it's going to be about consciousness and the simulation theory slash reality. So I got one more chapter to, to write and it's nice. amazing, man. Like all the stuff that I've learned in, in this journey about consciousness and the subconscious mind and, mm-hmm. and, and how easy it is to suppress it and, and what in this day-to-day life suppresses it and who is behind that and stuff like that. So it's going to be amazing. Yeah, it's funny you say, you bring that up because I've been kind of dipping my toes into some Carl Jung, bro, and that goes hard. Like Carl Jung oh, yeah. goes hard, and it's deep, it's dense material, and I've been as of lately trying to tiptoe into that because it's yeah. what they pretty much it's the occult, but from a scientific point of view. Absolutely, and oh, yeah. no, I love Carl Jung. I, I actually I, I quote him at the in the first chapter, the beginning of the first chapter. Uh, when, when you bring the, the unconscious to the conscious, you're going to let it rule your life and call it fate. Yeah, well, he makes <laughs> a lot of interesting points about the subconscious and archetypes. Um, but yeah, no, this the, today's presentation, uh, I decided to go about it because I've heard about the Committee of 300 um, throughout my journey as a researcher. 
And but recently I was at a used thrift store, a used bookstore, and I saw um, John Coleman's book, Conspirators Hierarchy, Committee of 300. I sent you the link, by the way. For, yeah, for I'm pulling email. it up now. You said Conspirator. Yeah, Conspirators Hierarchy, Committee of 300. I came across that book at a used bookstore and I was like, oh, this is cool. Let, let me check it out. And so I, it, but it didn't have a price in it. So I went up to the cashier and she's all crunching away at the laptop and she goes, oh, wow, I have to, I have to reshelf this. It's worth $200. And I was <laughs> like, what? Like, damn, I wish I would have a, had a pencil, like type in, you know, $5 or something. But uh, yeah, so when she told me that, I knew like there was something in this book that was important. So I went back home and I looked it up and found the PDF of it and then uh, just dived into it and realized I had a documentary on my hands. And Whoa. so I, I basically the, the documentary and, and presentation is, is based on his book, but I went outside of his book and found some um, extra information that he didn't cover that I thought would be of use. So I'm trying to figure out how to open this up because I don't have PowerPoint on my computer, but I figured it out already. So here I go to pull it up and oh man, hopefully it formats it correctly. Okay. So it kind of formatted it funny, but I mean, there you go. I just fixed the title. So committee of 300 and then you let me know if it looks too messed up, we'll figure it out, but I don't think. I think it'll be fine here. Word. Yeah. So obviously let me fix esoteric Eddie. Whoops. Yeah. It's a, it's a little off, but it's all good. That's, I think it's just, that's fine. That's just like the, uh, the fonts and stuff. Yeah. That, well, that's just the, the cover page, whatever, but here it is folks. Committee of 300 secret rulers of the world. And so you want me to just say skip or next? Yeah, yeah. Just let me know when you want me to skip on to the next one and we'll, we'll... Okay, so Dr. John Coleman. So that's the guy. So Dr. John Coleman wrote a book um, known as Conspirators Hierarchy Committee of 300. And uh, it, there's not a lot of information on him on the web. If you go to the next slide. Um, in that book, in the intro of the book, he tells us a little bit about himself. And according to him... He was an intelligence officer in uh, in Britain, so we're assuming MI6, and he moved to the United States in 1970, and he did a lot of work as a congressional lawyer, and so he was a very intelligent guy. He understood law, you know, international law from different countries, and he's written several books throughout his career, all of them pretty much around conspiracy theories and stuff like that. And by the time he wrote this book, The Committee of 300, he was already 57 years old. And he dropped that book in the 90s. And uh, if you go to the next slide, he's been on the Alex Jones show back in 2010. And uh, I listened to the full interview. It was pretty short. It didn't really go in too deep. But um, since then, Alex Jones has mentioned him in conversation in a show that he did last year in 2022. And in that show, Jones mentioned that he hadn't heard from the guy since 2010 and that he uh, believed that Mr. Coleman was probably already passed away because the last he heard of him was that he was already in bed sick and basically dying. So as far as we know, Dr. John Coleman has probably passed away at this point. Um, but the only other information that you can find of him online is the one surviving 
video of him giving a presentation, which is like an hour and a half long. It's on YouTube. Um, and it was put together by now defunct program or, or organization known as Wake Up America. So there's really not a lot out there of him, but whoever he was and, and uh, the information he had to bring to the table was pretty dope and, and vast. So going to the next slide, um, the term, the committee of 300. So again, that's a term that I've heard all throughout my journey of researching for like 15 years. Um, but he, it's just a term that he basically coined for the rulers of this world. You know, it's a general term like we use Illuminati today and stuff like that. But he got the, the number 300 specifically from Walter Rathenau, this guy we see on the screen right now. So Walter Rathenau was quoted as saying this in a German newspaper back in the early 1900s. And, and the quote for those just listening is, 300 men, all of whom know one another, guide the economic destinies of the continent and seek their successors from their own milieu. So that's where John Coleman got the number of 300. Now going to the next slide. Uh, Walter Rathenau, he was uh, Germany's foreign minister during World War One, as we see in the next slide. So he was Germany's foreign minister during World War One. Uh, he was a liberal uh, politician, meaning that after the war, he was going through great lengths uh, to build pragmatic international connections. He was trying to branch Germany outward from being a national country to an international uh, country. And because he was doing that, making deals with the Russians and stuff like that to basically get Germany out of the slump that it was in after the World War, um, a lot of the nationalists saw that as him you know, being like an enemy, you know, to Germany, to Germany. And a lot of the nationalists didn't like that. And he was also of Jewish descent. So eventually Walter Rathenau was assassinated. Now he was a part of a lot of men at that time, you know, elite upper echelon men who saw the world shifting from the old agricultural world to the new industrial world. And he, he saw the shift that was taking place. We were going from a nationalistic world with all these individual countries into an international world where governments were going to be interconnected. And so he, along with all these other globalists we're going to you know, cover in this presentation, saw that ahead of the curve. And he was trying to you know, shift Germany into that new world. And the nationalists didn't like that. And so he wasn't just some, some quack you know, when he said that quote that we covered. He was an intellectual, an upper echelon, um, and so he must have saw something behind the scenes that we didn't see for him to be able to say that, quote, about 300 men controlling the world. And um, into the next slide. Are we getting Alex Jones today, bro? Are we gonna I don't like him putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Bro, I have a whole section of Alex Jones. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm kind of retarded. Of all Alex Jones sound clips, okay, so. Hell yeah, man. Let's fucking use them today. The globalists are trying to take over the world, and the homunculists are turning them gay. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so these are uh, John Coleman's. This is John Coleman's outline in his book of what the Committee of 300's goals was to be. And as we read them, um, in mind that these were written out in the 90s by Coleman, it's pretty fucking like crazy to see that a lot of these are, are coming to fruition. So uh, the goals of the Committee 300, according to Coleman and all of the research throughout the decades that he did, um, are to create a one world church 
a monetary system, a one-world monetary system, uh, destruction of national identity, control of the mind, legalization of drugs and pornography, population control, mass unemployment, collapse of world economies, and infiltration and destruction of education. I mean, pretty much all of those are happening right now before our eyes. And this is exactly what year? Eddie, can you repeat again what year this is? I think he published that book in 92. Okay. And th did you end up getting a copy, by the way? Nah, man, not a physical copy, only PDF. Also, you did get a, like a, a copy, just not a physical actual copy. Okay. Because yeah. this is reminding me a lot of like the Georgia Guidestones, where oh, yeah. it's, you know, very not dystopian uh what do they call it U utopian right where it's uh, yeah. the new atlantis what was the other one new atlantis you had there was a few other ones too i can't think of them right now but anyways this this new world this uh, plato's republic where it's like this this the the philosopher king's rule the the elite's rule very eerie right legalization of drugs and pornography okay i mean that's Today, <laughs> control the mind <laughs> yeah. definitely with social media and technology, destruction of national Neuralink. Neuralink. And then it's always funny because whenever I see any of these lists like this, you know who else was being asked for like a one world church and a new world order? John D and the angels were telling him like, yo, you need to establish this new one world order church, right? <laughs> this new yeah. hermetic this hermetic palace that needs to this this nation that needs to it's like the angels were telling them that so it makes you wonder where these people are getting their their information from yeah and that it's funny too like that same exact list uh, was listed by john robison who was uh, a scholar back in the 1700s who's who was one of the first to expose the bavarian illuminati so if you look up john robison illuminati book, confirmed <laughs> In his book, Proofs of a Conspiracy, that book was published in the 1700s. It was the first book to expose the Bavarian Illuminati, and he lists out their goals, and it's pretty much the exact same thing that we just read. So was he pro-Illuminati or against them? Robison was against them. Okay, so, yeah, but you see, okay, we can get into it after. I'll continue, Eddie, please. For sure, for sure. So John Coleman, one of the first organizations or arms of the Committee of 300 that he covers is the Club of Rome. Now, the Club of Rome was basically the first of these like Illuminati front groups that used climate change and world economies <laughs> as an excuse to usher us into global government. As we see in the next slide, uh, the Club of Rome was started or founded in 1968 by Aurelio Pecci on the left and Alexander King, two very interesting characters. So going to the next slide, Alexander King uh, was recruited in by the British government uh, during World War II to be the deputy scientific advisor. And after the war, he became chief scientific advisor to the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. So he was an intellectual, definitely involved in the upper echelons of government, more so on the scientific side of things. And Coleman kind of blames this guy for um, heading some of the socialization of uh, education, you know, shifting education from being about real intelligence to more so about just being mundane regiments that teach children how to be workers. 
as we see in the next slide. I want to add real quick. Notice this guy's name, Alexander King. I think that a lot of these elites also align their names with certain things to trigger, right, Kabbalistically, the, the matrix, because I'm sure that his name has some numerical order, and I'm not trying to be like the Gematria guys are like, it equals 97. So, and, and this other thing equals, like, no, I'm talking about real magic, talismanic type thing where this name has Alexander the Great, right? Yeah. And you have King, Elvis Presley was the king, Martin Luther King Jr., the King Kill 33 ritual. So keep that in mind when it comes to a lot of these lizard people because they do that. Absolutely. So there used to be a journal uh, known, as, known as the Executive Intelligence Review Journal. And it's a really dope journal, dude. If you go look it up, it was like one of the first like conspiracy journals. Um, yeah, it was really awesome. And uh, in a 1981 issue, there was an interview uh, of Alexander King's that they um, went over. And in that interview, he talks about, as we see in this quote, that basically they reformed education and made it, you know, more about creating workers. But towards the end of that quote, he says, our policy was roughly that we should be at least five years ahead of thinking um, of the nation states. And second, however, we should never appear to be more than two years ahead. Otherwise, we would be killed. So that was, again, Alexander King, co-founder of the Club of Rome, claiming that, you know, him and his associates try to be five years ahead of the rest of the world, but never try to appear too ahead or else, you know, we would catch on to what they're doing. And so that's Aurelio Pecci. And Aurelio Pecci, uh, he was the other founder of the Club of Rome, and he was a sketchy character, too. So uh, he was associated with the, with the Rockefellers through the Rockefeller Foundation, Adela. And Adela was this international, um, basically, corporate group that was building relations in Southern America. So he was employed by the Rockefeller Foundation through Adela to go to South America and build international interests, you know, seek resources, seek cheap labor and all that kind of stuff. And he was a president of Olivetti, which was uh, an Italian technological um, company, you know, basically an international technology company uh, based out of Italy. And he was the president of that. And he was also connected to Gianni Agnelli. And Gianni Agnelli is the founder of the Fiat Motor Company. And the Fiat Motor Company was basically the Ford of Italy. And Gianni Agnelli at one point was, I believe, the richest man in Italy. Um, and so they were associated together. And it was and Agnelli actually employed Pecci to go to South America as well to seek out international interests. Again, cheap labor, cheap resources and all that kind of stuff. And he was also like a liberal socialist. So all these guys, they have a similar background and resume. They all have high resumes in education, high resumes in military. And they also have um, resumes in political activism at some point. And, and their political activism is always on the left side, you know, of uh, liberal socialism and stuff like that. And after World War II, he was a corporatocracy consultant. And corporatocracy is a term that I use a lot. Um, I didn't make it up, but uh, corporatocracy basically means the merging of politics and corporations. You know, it's is that like, a Michael Hoffman term? Who, who came up with that term? <laughs> I actually don't know. I don't know. I use it a lot, so I should probably know. But he uses you know, cryptocracy, I think. Cryptocracy. Yeah, I like I like corporatocracy because um, it, it explains. It's a very general term that explains a lot of what's going on. It's basically mm -hmm. just the merging of politics and corporations, which. 
basically America has become a corporatocracy. Yeah, and we know, because <laughs> I'm the homunculus daddy, that corporation literally means artificially created persons by a group of people. So look that up. It's in the etymology of the word. Absolutely, man. Fucking homunculus nation. <laughs> and so Petchy, he was uh, an amazing speaker and writer, according to Alexander King and his Club of Rome and Globalist Associates. He was known for giving very famous speeches that were moving for all these bustling international elitists. And in his book, The Human Quality, which he wrote in 1977, uh, he exposes himself and his globalists as to what their intentions really are. And um, in that quote, he talks about basically slowly trying to get nations to agree to be, be a part of this global uh, society. As he says, you know, the purpose in his book right here, the purpose of the great projects, which call for worldwide cooperation is twofold. On the one hand, they must aim at organizing a whole new reference framework for the human situation in this age of man's global empire. And on the other hand, they must be used to convince different human groups, nations, that it is their, in their direct and immediate interest to assign absolute priority to the systematic development of human quality and capacity. So just a whole bunch of globalist jargon that basically means we need to find a way to convince the different nations that it's in their be best interest to uh, allow us to be the global authority. And in the next quote from that same book of Pecci's, uh, we see something even more crazier than that. He says in that book, from the organizational standpoint, it seems appropriate for the concept to be applied of networks of specific centers using social actors, non-governmental organizations, and ad hoc groups organized to collaborate towards a common goal in different parts of the world it would strengthen the perception that a global approach is indispensable to face up to human problems. They would, in fact, be in many ways interlinked and together form a sort of system which embraces the entire globe in a variety of ways. So again, Pecci was just this you know, prolific globalist speaker and writer, and he was writing all of this not for us. He was writing this, obviously, for his globalist associates and showing them a vision of what they could achieve. And the Club of Rome's first publication um, is a book known as The Limits to Growth. And this book has shaped economics ever since. It created what is now known as zero growth economics, which is still taught and spoken about. And this book is, is, is uh, like canon to a certain extent in the history of economics. And this book was put together in a, you know, to um, instill fear in the world governments. It was meant to like make them all get scared and think that the world was ending. Cause in this book, what they talk about is that the current trends back in the seventies were, if not changed, were leading the world to chaos and there would be overpopulation and there would be, there wouldn't be enough for everybody and stuff like that. So this book was put together to scare the world governments and the people into slowing down population, into slowing down production and all these different things. So just another word for saying, you know, we are becoming overpopulated and we need to control, you know, our consumption and all that kind of stuff, the same stuff we're seeing today. And kind of like what you were saying earlier with the Georgia Guidestones, mm -hmm. that's what this book is pretty much is. This book is basically the Georgia Guidestones. It's saying we need to 
minimize everything because if we don't, then the entire world is going to end in a hundred years. That's what they said in that book. <laughs> it's going to end in a hundred years. So a lot of people freaked out because, you know, these were big wigs putting together a scientist from MIT to come up with this data. So they bought it. And of course, a lot, it helped push the governments around the world to a, a global approach. And in that book, they mentioned uh, Bertrand Russell, as we see in the next slide. And uh, uh, how Bertrand I always Russell, say, trust the, trust the science. I mean, science, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Bertrand Russell is quoted in their book and they quote one of his essays in praise of idleness. And that essay is like a globalist philosophy or philosophical essay. And basically what, what Bertrand Russell does is he proposes a conundrum. He says at that time, you know, humans, people, they go to work for eight hours a day and they produce just enough supply that is in demand. And that constitutes productivity. But if we were to invent a machine that produces twice as much supply in half of the amount of time, then that, although seems like beneficial, would actually lead to idleness and that it would cause a deterioration in society. And so it was this philosophical conundrum of like, well, maybe we shouldn't reach for idleness and we should just stick to working the amount of hours and producing the amount of supply we need. And of course, when he says that, he's not talking about him and his globalist associates. He's talking about us, who, who the global factory workers. And as we see in the next slide, Bertrand Russell was the grandson of Lord John Russell, a prime minister of Great Britain under Queen Victoria. And he taught the science of power at the London School of Economics and philosophy at the University of Chicago and UCLA. Again, another one of these globalist dudes with just a high resume in academia and um, government and stuff like that. What science of power? What the fuck does that even mean? Dude, I don't know. That sounds like some Illuminati shit. Yeah. <laughs> like the science of power. Brainwash and fill them with drugs. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But he wrote a book, too, known as The Impact of Science on Society. And uh, as you see the, the quote on the screen, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we, we've got a lot of quotes to go through. But um, in that book, again, this book, Impact of Science on Society, it was another one of those globalist uh, pieces of literature that helped shape their philosophy and, and bring it to what it is today. So it was in a very important book for these globalists. And in this quote that we have up on the screen, he's basically saying that, you know, again, Idleness shouldn't be something that that the general population strive for. They should just stick to doing what's good for the whole, you know, stick to what's doing good for the, the global factory system. And, you know, if you want to strive to be something else like a poet or whatever, you should do that in your off hours, you know, after work. So in other words, you know, the whole entire purpose of our lives should not be should not to be. Um, you know, musicians and artists or whatever it is we dream of. But instead, the purpose of our lives should just be to be workers. And another group that Dr. John Coleman uh, covers as an arm of the Committee of 300 is the Tavistock Institute, created in 1947. And the Tavistock Institute was the first global organization focused on psychology. So the first organization of uh, global psychologists. And just like most of these organizations, it was given a Rockefeller Foundation grant. And it was created by three psychologists, Eric Treist, Wilfred Bion, and Jock Sutherland. But all 
excuse me, all three of these you know, young psychologists at that time were influenced by an already professional or a popular psychologist heading this type of thing known as Dr. Kurt Lewin. And as we see in the next slide, Dr. Kurt Lewin was a German-born American. He served in World War I, and he left Germany before uh, World War II could happen. And he taught at the, or did some work in psychology at the State of University of Iowa. And he was the founder and director of the Research Center for Group Dynamics at MIT here in America. And um, group dynamics was an old term for basically the research of mass population control or mass you know, population behavior. So that's what he did. He studied how people behave in groups and how that you know, uh, group mind could be manipulated towards whatever agenda. And during World War II, he was employed by the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, um, to help them in creating psychological warfare tactics against the enemy. And I believe also towards the American population to get them to be in support of the war effort. So another one of these guys, man, a huge resume uh, in, in uh, ac academia and military. And so this next dude here, John Rawling Reese. Now, before the Tavistock Institute, which again was the first uh, global psychological movement, um, there was the Tavistock Clinic. So that was before the Tavistock Institute. And this guy was the director of the Tavistock Clinic back in 1933. And he was a World War I medical officer, um, but he had experiences in both uh, world wars, saw a lot on the battlefield. And during the mid-50s, he founded the World Federation for Mental Health. And so he was a, one of these early guys pushing for, you know, global mental health, global psychology, because you're creating a network of psychologists. And through his experience in war, he wrote a book, as we see in the next slide, known as The Shaping of Psychiatry by War. Another one of these very important books for the globalists. The Shaping of Psychiatry by War basically, you know, concludes that war is useful. You know, in his time at war, being a medical officer, seeing trauma and how um, in those scenarios, humans have to come together and organize quickly. He realized that there are a lot of interesting and fascinating things about the psychology of the human mind that we can tap into and manipulate. And he says in that book that we could have only learned that through war and through the experiences of war. And through that, in his book, he talks about creating a global psychiatry movement um, used to basically uh, manipulate group behavior in the same way that we could during war. As we see in this essay that he wrote, known as Strategic Planning for Mental Health, that he wrote in 1940. And I'll read this quote here, which pretty much states what I just said about him. Uh, he says here, Public life, politics, and industry should be within our sphere of influence. If we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. It really wouldn't matter if no one ever heard of this council again, provided that the work was done. Let us, the, let us all, therefore, very secretly be fifth columnists Parliament, the press, and other publications are the most obvious ways by which our propaganda can be got across, 
and it needs the thought and work of every one of us to get this going. Yikes. Yeah, man, big yikes. <laughs> and this is the the 1940s when I, I mean, we don't have the internet at this point, obviously, but we're, we're information. This is still there. I mean, this is, is this the name of the book that it's in? Uh, that that's the name of an essay that he wrote. I believe essay. strategic planning for mental health. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, we know that to be true, right? Yeah. And so in that quote, I just read, he says, he says something interesting. He says, we should become fifth columnists. I didn't know what that term meant until I read it in that quote. And I did a little research and fifth columnist was like an old term in the 20th century. It was a war term that basically meant spy. And so when he says we should be like the totalitarians and become fifth columnists and, you know, do this secretly, he's saying basically we should become spies or we should be, create a secret society and slowly infiltrate society as a global psychiatry movement and help shape the you know behavior of mass population. Mm. And so going back to Bertrand Russell in his book, Impact of Science on Society, he you know, gives us this pretty like spooky prophecy having to do with this global psychology movement. And he says here in his book, the social psychologists of the future will have a number of classes of school children on whom they will try different methods of producing an unshakable conviction that snow is black. Various results will soon be arrived at. First, that the influence of home is obstructive. Second, that not much can be done unless indoctrination begins before the age of 10. Third, that verses set to music and repeatedly intoned are very effective. And it goes on. And so that's pretty harrowing because this whole thing about teaching children that snow is black, you know, basically that white is black, um, kind of rings true today with all the stuff we're seeing with all this switching around of genders and all the different, you know, this is what used to be good is bad and what used to be bad is good now. So we're kind of living in that right now. Yeah. And the whole right rap game with music and the violence that they put in the, in the, in those verses and all these things that they're saying, I mean, this is 1951. So, and these dudes were racist as fuck back then too. So <laughs> <laughs> absolutely dude. So going from there, of course we have Edward Bernays, uh, you know, the father of basically public relations, as he's known, the father of marketing, you know, modern advertisement. And he was the nephew to Sigmund Freud, you know, one of the fathers of psychology. And he had a humble beginning. Uh, he had a career as a writer uh, for newspapers, as a review writer. And uh, he would write reviews for like medical companies and, and later for like produce companies. And so he he got became he became very successful at that. So he started his own review company, known as the Medical Review of Reviews Sociological Fund Committee. I don't know why he named it that, being that he was good at advertising. But he started his own review company, and it was a success. So this was before the internet and all of that. So back then, if you wanted people to buy your products, they would go and read the reviews. So he started uh, quickly being funded by again all these elites, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, and all these other guys. You know, they were funding him, giving him money to rig the reviews and write positive reviews for their products. And back then that was like, you know, that was king. So everybody believed it. And so that's how he got his start in the elite by writing reviews for elite uh, companies and industries. Damn, bro. Yeah. Wild. And he wrote a book literally called Propaganda. And in that book, he 
you know, reveals a lot. You know, he tells us a lot of revealing information of what he learned. And during World War One, he was actually employed by the CPI, the Committee on Public Information, um, to create propaganda to get the general population to support the war effort. And in his book, Propaganda, we read here, as he says, there was one basic lesson I learned in the CPI, that efforts comparable to those applied by the CPI to affect the attitudes of the enemy of neutrals and people of this country could be applied with equal facility to peacetime pursuits. In other words, what could be done for a nation at war could be, could be done for organizations and people in a nation at peace. So again, he's basically saying the same thing that um, John Rawling Reese was saying, that war is useful and that, you know, when we're at war, our human instincts kick in and all these fascinating psychological processes happen. But Bernays realized that those same behavior instincts that happen at war, we could manipulate in everyday life. And so some of the biggest social changes that he created, um, which are kind of funny, uh, are... For one, convincing American men to wear wristwatches. So he did that. So there was a time when men only wore pocket watches. And to wear a wristwatch was seen as feminine. Damn, I'm gay as fuck then, bro, because I wear a watch on my, on my <laughs> hey, Me too, man. I looked at my watch after this. I was like, fuck you. I threw it across the room. I ain't going to be no Illuminati shill. Fuck yeah. a wristwatch. Yeah, bro. No, but I mean, it was a smart thing because... At that time, only women were wearing wristwatches, so there was an entire half of the globe not buying wristwatches, so he was employed by his clients to write up advertisements so that they can get men to buy wristwatches and double their money or whatever. And the same thing happened with cigarettes, so he made it socially acceptable for women to smoke cigarettes. Same thing, you know, there was a whole half of the population not buying or smoking cigarettes, and now they were. And he was the one who made bacon and eggs the classic American breakfast. So that wasn't just some, you know, gung-ho thing that the Yankee or whatever did. You know, he actually was hired by the food industry to make bacon and eggs seen as like this hearty American breakfast. What? Yeah. It's pretty so wild. it's so wild, bro. Like the way that these guys and back to the a little bit back to the propaganda, mimetic occultism as I've been heard it coined is the idea that they use propaganda to speak to the soul so mm -hmm. it's these things that don't just speak to you on on the outer levels it goes much deeper and how you were saying earlier they don't want you the you know the idle hands they want you doing the least amount the, the they want you working the most you can right with the least obviously with the least amount of pay that they can give you and all these things but this idea it's it's to really break you down. It goes back to the Republic, how I mentioned earlier, where Plato knew that the art spoke to people's soul. So he wanted to eliminate and also limit the instruments that they would hear, the musical notes, so frequencies that they were allowed to hear, the plays that they were allowed to watch. And the Greeks... When a, when a woman was pregnant, they knew what to let her eat, what to let her watch, what to let her hear, because they understood that these influences would affect the baby. So, again, we have all these ideas of antiquity transferring over to guys like this to where this goes way deeper, bro. I mean, this is this goes deep. And I'm, I'm thinking of bacon and eggs. Well, that's like very fallacy, right? You got the 
the dick and the balls, right? And it's like yeah. the staple American breakfast. And now you have the obelisks everywhere. I don't know, bro. My mind just going above and beyond because remember, this is who was he? He was Sigmund Freud's nephew. Nephew, yeah. And we all know about Sigmund Freud. He was probably wanting he want he wanted his mom. I mean, for for yeah. lack of you know what I'm saying? Like he was all we all like our moms. Like, I don't know about that. Maybe you do, bro, but shh, yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah, the whole breakfast thing was like just their way of saying, eat a dick. <laughs> yeah, can I clip that, bro? It's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be the intro, bro, to the show, Eat a Dick by Esoteric Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, man, and Bernays, man, Edward Bernays, he lived to be like over a hundred years old, man. I think he died in like nineteen ninety-five. And he was like a sturdy dude. He was still working and giving presentations up until his death. And again, here we have this quote here from his book, Propaganda in 1928, which I think is a very important one to cover. He says, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, and our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. And he goes on to continue that thought. And again, man, this is this is this isn't just some random esoteric Eddie guy. This is Edward Bernays, you know, who was hired by the government and all these huge elites, you know, and he he gave us this book. You can go buy it, man. He, he dropped the knowledge on us. He he blessed us at least that much to tell us what's really going on. So, wait, was he a good guy or a bad guy, bro? I would say he was a neutral, man. You know, I think I think he was a neutral on, in the, on the spiritual spectrum of things. You know, I think he was just doing what he thought he had to do at the time. You know, but for him to expose all of it and give it to us in books, I think that shows something about his, his real heart, you know? I mean, cause some of these guys are just straight up evil could give a, could give a fuck less about all of us, but I don't know. That's just me based off of his vibe and everything. I think he was a neutral. Yeah. I think in this life we have, you know, for real archons and then we have for real archangels and then, you know, mm. there are humans in between, man. We're, we're in between of these arch archons and archangels and we're capable of both of those powers. But just remember, what bro. Makes us, that, what up? I said, just remember that he's the one that made you eat a dick, bro, for breakfast. Just oh uh, yeah, fuck him, he's evil. <laughs> just saying, bro. Him. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. Nah, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. <clears throat> but uh, yeah. So the next one of the next major organizations that Dr. Coleman covers is the uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, and so the Council on Foreign Relations is another one of these corporatocracy organizations that are like a front you know, for government and corporate uh, relations. You know, they, they front themselves as if they're some political, legit organization, but they're not sanctioned by the government. They're just mm. an, or a private organization that's made up of a tons of upper echelon um, politicians and entertainment moguls. And all of these people come together and help influence actual government policies. And so the Council on Foreign Relations, um, they've borrowed that tactic of, you know, getting moguls and upper echelon um, elites to influence policymaking through J.P. Morgan. 
So as we see in the next slide, J.P. Morgan, of course, we're all familiar with him to a certain degree. You know, he's one of the richest guys ever in American history and just a hardcore. He looks like a lizard, bro. Yeah, for real, man. Like shit. Looked like he came out like a, he like he was born an old man. <laughs> you know, just never fucking smiled. It's called the homunculus, bro. <laughs> hey, there you go. J.P. Homunculus. But there, there's a, a document. Yeah, if you go to that next slide, there, there's a document that you can find online um, known as U.S. Congressional Record, February 9th, 1917. And in that record, there's a testimony held against J.P. Morgan stating that in 1915, J.P. Morgan employed uh, 12 men who were high up in the newspaper industry to seek out and examine all the newspapers of the United States at that time and determine which of the few, maybe 20 to 25, they would need to buy out in order to infiltrate and um, influence the narrative of the entire nation. And they did that. And that was unprecedented. Nobody had ever done that before. Nobody ever thought to have done that before, but he saw that. And so he was the first person to basically buy out mass media during the newspaper days and use it to push you know, policymaking and push the interest of his associates and uh, shareholders. And so again, um, the Council on Foreign Relations took that blueprint and, and used it. And uh, J.P. Morgan was actually one of the first to fund the Council on Foreign Relations. And I think he sat one of his men as like the first director of the Council on Foreign Relations. And as we see there, um, all of American media has slowly been bought up by six major companies um, as of right now, which are the ones you see on the screen, you know, Comcast, Disney, CBS, Viacom, News Corp, AT&T. So all of the media we see, whether it's the Super Bowl, the Rugrats or whatever you're watching, you know, it's all being fed through these six companies, which are being fed through probably this supposed committee of 300 that Coleman talks about. And I want to add that this is not anything that is new, right? This has been going around for 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 forever and i mean even if you come and look at this day who owns the washington post jeff bezos uh, so the grand family sold the newspaper to nash holdings a company owned by jeff bezos for 250 million so who owns twitter elon musk and i'm sure there's other ones but those are the two that i can think of on the spot but these elite, how is that okay, bro? That these elites can have so much power already in this realm, whatever it is, if it is this reality or war, whatever it is, and then they can do stuff like this. Like they can own entire newspapers. It's wild to me, dude. Yeah. And so moving from there, we go into Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential acceptance speech, which exposed. Um, something very huge in just a short phrase. So as you see in the next uh, slide there, in that speech, he said, as a teenager, I heard John Kennedy's summons to citizenship. And then as a student at Georgetown, I heard that call clarified by a professor named Carol Quigley. So Carol Quigley was his old you know, professor, and he was obviously special enough to be mentioned during his presidential speech. And Carol Quigley taught at Harvard, Princeton, and Georgetown University. 
He was a consultant to the U.S. Department of Defense and the Navy, the Smithsonian Institute, and the House Select Committee on Astronautics and Space Exploration. Another one of these high-ranking upper echelon academicians um, within the globalist sphere. And he wrote a book that I think all Americans should read, at least in high school, if, or at least in college or high school, you know, for sure. And he wrote it and published it back in 1966. It's a massive 1,100-page book. And in that book, he basically exposes the globalist philosophy and shows us where it all started and, and what they've been doing and what they plan on doing. And he he's interesting because he doesn't do it as a conspiracy theorist to expose them. He does it as a high-ranking academician um, to praise them. He praises them in this book and thinks that their history is so impressive that it should have been um, detailed in a book like this. And he claims that he studied these people firsthand. As we see in this quote right here, he says, there does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the Communist Act. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 60s to examine its papers and secret records. And then in the rest of the quote, he basically says um, he doesn't disagree with them and what they're doing. The only disagreement he has is that they remain secret, whereas he thinks they should go public because of how impressive their work and history really is. And so Carol Quigley, he, he thought he was different than John Coleman. Um, he, in a few different ways, Carol Quigley believed that this globalist philosophy and um, timeline started with Cecil Rhodes. So Cecil Rhodes was from the 19th century. He was an imperialist and he exploited Southern Africa's gold and diamond mines. And uh, there's still a state over there or a country actually still named after him, Rhodesia. And Cecil Rhodes took all of the gold and diamonds that he exploited from South Africa and created what is known as the Round Table Group, which was one of these first secret societies, groups, you know, hell-bent on globalist agendas. But Cecil Rhodes was specifically a racist. Um, you know, he believed in uh, Great Britain being the superior race, and he wanted to take over the world for the Anglo-Saxons. And he uh, wrote about infiltrating America and taking it back you know, for Great Britain and stuff like that. So uh, to Carol Quigley, all of this really started with Cecil Rhodes, the Africa and gold mine exploitation and the round table group, which uh, still funds a lot of like academic stuff around the world. And this is the guy for the Rhodes scholarship. Absolutely. So, and also I, I think this is linked to the, so what? Uh, the scholarship at first was excluded from, from women having it. <laughs> Until 1977, obviously black people couldn't have it until I don't know when 1971, I believe it was 1980s. Despite the protests, only 1991, with the rise of African National Congress, did black South Africans begin to win the scholarship. Damn, in 1990, well, that was not too long ago. And also, I think it was another Rhodes that did the whole thing they call him they called him the mengala of the caribbean the guy that went to puerto rico and he experimented on the puerto rican people and they sprayed chemicals on them and they they injected them with cancer cells trying to give them cancer and all these things he was another roads jeez that's fucked up man but uh 
Yeah, so this is just a quote from Rhodes going to his racist and imperialist globalist uh, ideology. He says, why should we not form a secret society but with but one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole world under British rule for the recovery of the United States for making the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire? So, I mean, these guys were just putting it out there, man. And uh, one other quote from Carol Quigley's book, which is important, uh, he states, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. And he continues on. So this is, again, Carol Quigley, man, high-ranking academician, studied with these people for two years, studied them for 20 years, and was quoted by Bill Clinton during his presidential acceptance speech, telling us you know, that there is a system of hidden controllers that are slowly pushing mm -hmm. us to a, towards a, a new world order. Okay. You know, this isn't Alex Jones. This isn't, you know, me or you, Juan. This is like this is history. upper echelon shit. History, if you want to believe it, right? And the guy that I was talking about was Dr. Cornelius Rhodes, but it's not spelled Rhodes like this Rhodes. It's, it's spelled differently. But he was also part of the Rockefeller Foundation, as well as all a lot of these guys were founded by the Rockefellers. And we know that the the educational system is ruled by Rockefellers. It was created. And it's how, it was, how the guy was talking about earlier, where people are, right, it's malleable. As long as people are malleable, you're able to form them into what you want. And it's run by this invisible college, if you will, right? Of this, of this, yeah. the, these people that are ruling within the shadows. The guy said it earlier. You don't know their names, but they're forming everything around you as you know it, pretty much. Yeah, man, absolutely. And going from there, we got Zbigniew Brzezinski, coolest last name in the game. So Brzezinski was another one of these globalists you know, puppets, if you will. He was a counselor to President Lyndon B. Johnson, a president uh, to President Jimmy Carter. He was the national security advisor, a major organizer of the Trilateral Commission, member of the Bilderberg Group and Council on Foreign Relations. And he was an interesting guy because he wrote a prophetic book for the globalists um, back in the 70s known as Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technocratic Era. And it's another one of those globalist books that tells us a lot between the lines. And as we see in the next in the next uh, page, he says, accordingly, both the growing capacity for the instant calculation of the most complex interactions and the increasing availability of biochemical means of human control augment the potential of scope of consciously chosen direction and thereby also the pressures to direct to choose and to change. The technocratic age will create the possibility of extensive chemical mind control and the feasibility of manipulating the genetic structure. Whoa. And dude, did you notice how, how, like, what is this? Is this sigils or something? Dude, like, I don't know what that is. What is that? Dude, that's a sigil. Right? Somebody's got to break that down, dude. Call call the homie Slick, bro. He'll probably get it. Yeah, bro. I'm about to look that up right now because that's wild. But yeah, I've, I covered on my channel MK Ultra, so some of these names are popping up similar to the MK Ultra program. And this guy's talking about the possibility of extensive chemical mind control. I mean, don't they put a whole bunch of shit in our foods anyways nowadays that 
Like I've been trying to buy organic, bro, but it's like number one, it's super expensive, and sometimes they make it impossible. Cause it's like we went to the like I was just in the in the food store this past weekend, and the orange juice aisle. I'm like orange juice from concentrate, orange juice from. I'm like, where is the real or? And then it says from real orange from concentrate. I'm like, bro, come on, man. Like there's just chemicals, you know what I'm saying? Like there's no more yeah. natural stuff. So. It's just wild to me. They're 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 achieving this, and they've been saying it for years. And I've always said that yeah. there's there's no way that conspiracy theorists have it all figured out because it always seems like they're like, oh, we figured them out. It's like, no, you didn't, bro. They've been doing this for forever, and it's going according to plan. You didn't figure it out one second in your mom's basement somewhere, you know, watching Netflix or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. It's straight up. That's the same conclusion I came to, man. When I was doing the research for this, I was like, oh man, like we are vastly behind. Mm-hmm. Like these guys have been cranking out globalist work for almost a hundred. They've been years cranking out now. bangers, bro. Just, just fire this yeah. whole time, and then here we yeah. are. Oh, it happened on a movie on Netflix, so therefore, you know, and they fucking start like they they have a hard on for this type of shit. So they like to to talk about all this, but then like, what are you like? What are you doing, bro? You're not smarter than them. Like that. And I know <laughs> don't mean to say that in a nihilistic way, but these are smart, powerful people. Yeah, I, you know what I'm saying? Like you can't underestimate them and 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 think that you have them figured out because of of one thing that just happened to match up. Like no, it's a lot more complex than that is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, no man, I I agree with you 100%, dude. Like these are smart dudes with high resumes in academia and military backgrounds and so that's why I would say like man, if you really really want to go against these people, like you got to get your life in order first. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you got to get your finances in order first. You got to get your health in order for, in it first, you know? Because we're messed, we're we're up against upper echelon right here, man, like, too. So we need to be upper echelon just to match where mm-hmm. they're at. Just to match where we're at. Otherwise, we're just throwing rocks at a Capitol building mm-hmm. that's got nukes pointed at us. Yeah, and they print the money, too, bro. They literally created the money that you use, so. Absolutely, dude. So this is a quote from Zabrinsky's, uh, Brzezinski's book that has to do with brainwashing. So he says in that book that reliance on television enhanced the tendency to replace language with imagery, which is international rather than national, and to include war coverage of scenes of hunger in places as distant as, for example, India, creates a somewhat more cosmopolitan, though highly impressionistic, involvement in global affairs. Basically saying they're going to use television and subliminal imagery to pull out our emotions and get us to to believe that there's a need for a global authority. And here on the screen, we got, you know, none other than Henry Kissinger. And so Henry Kissinger, another one of these globalists with a high resume, was the United States Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. Is a, was a CFR board of director, you know, Council on Foreign Relations board of director, uh, still as a member, was uh, has been a foreign consultant to many different corporatocratic companies and politicians around the world, and has been a globalist writer and influencer for many decades, and has been regarded as a war criminal by many American historians, who see that the work he did uh, in Indochina, you know, was was just atrocious so he could definitely be put on trial as a war criminal but hasn't but yeah just a sketchy dude high resume and uh he wrote a book known as the chance for a new world order 
back in 2009, literally titled, bro, The Chance for a New World Order, back in 2009. And he wrote this right after the 2008 crisis in America. And for those who don't know or don't remember, uh, 2008 was one of the worst modern times of, of an economic crash. You know, my parents were affected by it. A lot of people lost their homes and businesses and stuff like that. And so Kissinger wrote a book right after that. And just like these other globalists that we mentioned before, he realized that in times of crises, there is also an opportunity for the elite to take the world through the rubble and reshape it in the way that they want to. And we see that in the quote here, as he says, this generation of leaders has the opportunity to shape trans-Pacific relations into a design for a common destiny. And of course, that's like flowery wording, mm -hmm. not for us, but for his globalist associates, basically saying, hey, if there's ever like a war or there's a crisis and, and all that, we can take advantage of that, buy everything up and change it all up and guide it all to where we want. Because when people are dis desperate and, and destitute, mm -hmm. all they can do is take what's given to them. And uh, going back a little bit to, to this one here where they're using TV, and I forgot who the guy's name was that was part of MK Ultra who was obsessed with the occult. I'm going to have to find his name because we talked about him in the episode we did. I did an episode of Paranormal American. And there was a dude in the, in the, because we know the Nazis allegedly were occultists and they were all trying to find the spear of destiny. And I think that I have this other theory where they were trying to create the Philosopher's Stone, but I'm not going to say it on air. And the this idea that, yeah, they're using sigils, imagery, mandalas, all these different things that transport people's consciousness. And part of the 1930s, during the Great Depression, part of that was the reason... You remember when that thing happened in 2020 that crashed everything? Well, theaters never went out of business. AMC was a meme stock, right? They were trying to keep it afloat because they didn't want to go bankrupt. Well, if you think about that and the correlation between the 1930s when escapism was a thing. And the reason that theaters didn't go bankrupt in the 1930s during the great depression was because of these simulacrums of caves as i like to call them a theater they were transporting people people were living through the movies and being transported out of, the, out of this reality because the world was shit right the world was garbage there was people killing themselves everybody had lost everything right one of the greatest economic depressions of all time and they refer to it as an economic contagion that took over all the markets like this metaphysical type entity that was just going through the markets and, and just wiping them out which is weird wording and escapism was at the core of it and that's why theaters never went out of business because people were living in these movies you know what i'm saying like and that's why i think in 2020 it was the same thing they were living through or they were trying to keep it alive because they know the power that it holds these theaters yeah, man. Absolutely. Well said, bro. Um, <clears throat> where am I at? Oh, so, yeah. So Kissinger wrote this other book known as World Order in 2014. And going to what you just said about movies and the screen, uh, and in the middle of this quote on the screen, he, talk, he says, television, computers, and smartphones compose a trifecta offering nearly constant interaction with a screen throughout the day. Nearly every website contains some kind of customization function based on internet tracing codes designed to ascertain a user's background and preferences. These methods are intended to encourage users to consume more content 
and in doing so be exposed to more advertising. These subtle directions are in accordance with a broader trend to manage the traditional understanding of human choice. And he says here, goods are sorted and prioritized to present those which you would like. And online news is presented as news which will best suit you. Yikes, bro. Yeah, so it's, it's it's coming from Kissinger, right? And he's basically talking about the individual the individualization of uh, content and news and and all these things. How we're basically being led to the technocratic age of Brzezinski, where everything's just going to be in your face, overlord, overlord, literally overlords, but overloaded, and all of that, you know. So um, that's what they're prophesizing, and that's what they're basically planning. And so from. Kissinger, we get to, of course, Klaus Schwab, the newest globalist Darth Sith on the scene. And so Klaus Schwab actually met Kissinger at Harvard back in the 60s. And at that time, Kissinger was giving presentations at Harvard and Schwab was just a student, you know, a young little Darth Sith. And he was recruited by Kissinger into the International Seminar, which was just like this um, academic think tank of globalists of young globalists you know how you know international interests and stuff like that internationalist was the the old word old word for globalist and that think tank was actually funded by the cia and klaus schwab has some dubious family history so his dad was a nazi officer uh eugene schwab who used to work for bomb making programs and Klaus Schwab's got some dubious and nefarious stuff in his past, too. So he helped oversee a merger of two big companies that were friends of his dad. And that merger uh, became Solzer AG, which he became a director of. And that company was uh, working a program in southern Africa making thermonuclear bombs, which were illegal, I think, by all countries. And um, he was they were doing that. Uh, with the apartheid corrupt government down there. So Schwab, Schwab has been tied to Kissinger for, for decades now, been tied to Nazis through his family. He's been tied through shady business through his days as a consultant. And of course, he started his own thing, as we see in the next slide. In 1971, he founded the World Economic Forum. And most of us never even heard of this guy or the World Economic Forum until, of course, 2020. But as we see, he's been doing this stuff for decades. What, that's 40, 50 years, whatever it is. And so he created the World Economic Forum based off of the, all of the philosophies we just covered. You know, the World Economic is this front group that supposedly is tackling world uh, economies, you know, global climate changes and all these different things. And time and time again, he's it's clear that all these presentations and, and speeches that him and his associates are giving aren't for us. They're all worded and geared towards themselves and how they can take what's going on in the world and shift it so that it benefits them. And interestingly, as we see in the next slide, when he was coming up and doing his thing, um, he the third uh, meeting he ever held for the World Economic Forum invited none other than Club of Rome, the Club of Rome's co-founding member Aurelio Pecci to be its keynote speaker. So at that time, Schwab was a young buck doing his thing, trying to get into the globalist movement. And the Club of Rome was already bustling. It had been doing its, its thing. And so he invited um, Pecci to come be its keynote speaker. And so you have that connection 
you know, with all these guys from the beginning all the way till now with Klaus Schwab and, of course, his demonic idea of the Great Reset, which comes from his mentor, Kissinger, and all these other guys. And that philosophy is, you know, basically create crises or take a crisis and utilize it to their advantage. And uh, with that, folks, that's pretty much the end of the presentation, and that's the situation we're in. So I looked up, I just want to say you did a great job, bro. And I, I want to point something out real quick. You think with this much money, you got fucking lint on your suit, bro? Come on, dude. What the <laughs> fuck is this? You just got pieces of lint and stuff on. Anyways, but I looked up, I looked up Klaus Schwab's net worth and I got this guy, Charles Schwab. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, I've heard the name. Bro, this dude's worth $11.6 billion. And Charles he Schwab. yeah Charles Robert Schwab Sr. of the huh. Bloom. So he's got let's see who who this guy. Is. I've never even heard of this guy before. Apparently he is. So he's the two hundred and tenth richest man in the world. Wow, what a two hundred and tenth bro! Step up, get yo, get your money up, dog. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he's an American investor and financial executive. He's the founder and chairman of Charles Schwab corporation so an american multinational financial services company over banking commercial banking investing of course another one of these banking conglomerates that they rule the world so i don't know dude in all of your stuff that you researched was there anything as far as because when i think of crowd psychology i think of gustav Le Bon, which i think you should read okay yeah and i covered it on he's the father of crowd psychology and a crowd can be a nation it can be a neighborhood it can be a building it can be you know there's criteria for a crowd and he talked about how what affected a crowd and and how a crowd became its own living organism in a, in a way and it was as smart as the dumbest person in it and that makes sense yeah. so a crowd is as yeah. dumb as the smartest person in it and one of the things that always stuck out to me was the prestige he talked about prestige and the prestige is excuse me, is this metaphysical thing that these guys put out. And that's why I mentioned like the, the names, because names, you know, the, the way that they try, they're, they serve as a sort of talisman, as a sort of mantle that they wear them. And they give off this prestigious energy where people automatically pay attention to them. They, they automatically tune to what, into what they're saying. And he also talked about, so these leaders lead and they and they make these crowds through their prestige this metaphysical thing and also he talked about this contagion that spread itself through the crowd this metaphysical thing that you can't see that you can't witness but he called it a contagion like a mind virus type of thing that weaved its way in and out of the crowd and made people act barbarically they brought out this primal nature in people hence all these riots that we saw where people get more ballsy when they're in a crowd because of that crowd psychology and these guys are going based off of that that because that work was written in i want to say 18 the crown gustav laban it was written in dude let's see here 1895 bro this guy was saying that 1895 so these guys are all studying that 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 this guy put out and was there anything else occultic? Because I always relate everything to the occult and that the way that they want to 
manipulate people through the use of some sort of magic in their own sick way. Did you come across yeah. anything occultish or weird in your in your research of these these lizard people? Because they are lizard people to me. <laughs> Absolutely, not for this particular document. I try to keep it more just academic based, but I'm sure it's there. You know, I'm definitely sure it's there. Because yeah, this this honestly, this documentary took me a long time to make. So I just I had to cut out a lot of things. I was like, oh man, how am I even gonna, you know, compress this into like a, a basic timeline? The presentation I just gave was a was a summarized version of the actual documentary. So um, and if those, for those who want to check it out, you know, it's on YouTube for free. But I also dropped the article version on my website esotericeddy.com, and I list all the sources in the article. So mm-hmm. all, there's like I think twenty or something sources. So you can go and check out all the sources and you can shit use it for your college essays or whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. But nah, man, I didn't come across anything too occultic, but I'm absolutely sure it's there if, if I want to go back and take a look. Yeah. And I like the connections that these people had in their families. I'm sure they're, they're related in some way or another to right. Vlad, Vlad what the hell's the impaler? Yeah. Vlad, whatever. Vlad the impaler, right. You have the, the, the prince boasting about how he was related to him. And all these things. But yeah, I think at the core, bro, absolutely. And even, and the reason I say that these people, people think that they have them outsmarted, but also they do things to really power the conspiratorial realm where you have Biden going in front of the, whatever speech he was going to give. And he goes, and you know, we're going to have a new world order. Like, bro, you know, for forever, conspiracy theorists have been going crazy over over that word, the, the NWO. And here you yeah. are. Everyone thinks you're a freaking clone or a zombie or something, and you're gonna go in front of the nation, one of the, the one of the most powerful nations in the world, if it's flat or round, whatever the fuck it is, who cares? Yeah, yeah. And say that you know there's room for a new world order or whatever it was that he said. Yeah. Like people people lose their shit over this, bro. And I think that I think also part of the problem that we face with these individuals is that we also give them more power than, than they need. Right. And by us projecting this energy, like, Oh, the elites, the elites, the elites, we're powering this egregore where they are more powerful than they actually are because it's perceived that way. Right. Absolutely. Dude. My next book is, it touches on that. The last second, to last chapter I talk about the subconscious mind and um, the reptilian brain Right. This is something that I've kind of been digging into in my recent research that's going into my next book. You know, there are different levels to consciousness as there mm-hmm. are different levels of the mind and there are different levels of the brain. And we have what is known as the reptilian brain. So it's kind of funny, like we've always been talking about the reptilians, like, oh, man, they're a reptilian. We got to kill the reptilians. <laughs> but what's really going on is they're actually shit turning us into reptilians through the evoking and subjugation of our consciousness of the reptilian brain within us. So they try to keep us operating through our reptilian brain, uh, which is the lower vibrating and, and lower instinctual brain. So it's kind of funny, man, all these years, it turns out, you know, we're really the reptilians. Damn, bro, uh, say it louder for the people in the back. Illuminati confirmed. You heard that here first, ladies and gentlemen, Esoteric Eddie, you are the reptilians. So, yeah, dude, absolutely. And I think that I'm excited to to see your work on the consciousness of it all because I do believe 
in some way or another that people create their own realities. Now, maybe it's not as simple as that, but you know, the reality tunnels that people are put in that that's their only worldview. There are still people who are, bro. The other day I was sitting in my driveway, washing my wife's car and I see the Amazon driver pull up and dude was by himself. He had a fucking mask on, bro. Oh god! And I, bro, I felt like honestly, like I was listening to a podcast, and I was just like zoned out. But I felt like, bro, like say, like, "Yo, are you okay, bro?" Right? Like I saw him. I'm like, "Yo, are you okay?" Because why the fuck are you wearing that by yourself, dude? We're outside, dog. Huh? What are you doing, man? You know, like, like but there's are you shrooming right now? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, delivering his Amazon pack, but. But here's the thing, man. You know, we got to help those people to a certain extent, right? You got to bring, and this is why I do this, because we we bring awareness to people because those people sometimes can't think for themselves. Now, you can't help anybody who doesn't want to help themselves 100%. But at least, like, I, I wasn't making fun of him, but I felt, like, concerned, like, legitimately concerned because it's gotten to the point where, you're by yourself, bro. And I see it all the time. People driving around by themselves yeah. with these things on their, you know what I'm saying? Like it, dude, it's already been, they've already come out and, and talked about what they're going to talk about saying that didn't, didn't even work from the beginning. When it first came out, they're like, Oh, don't buy them. They don't do anything. And they, cause it was meant for them to get it first. And then the other, so it's like, come on, man. But again, if they don't want to help themselves, another thing you can only, you can only beat a dead horse so many times and it's still a dead horse. Right. So, yeah, but I felt absolutely. bad, bro. Like legitimately, like, I felt bad for the guy because, like, dude, you're alone. You're just, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. What are you doing, man? Are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay? Like that's hey, what I go felt. outside and ask a masker if they're okay today. That should yeah. be a shirt. No, for sure, for sure. So I saw that this past weekend. I was like, damn, bro. There's like, there's people really out here living this reality that they've painted for us. That they yeah, did. That they dude. try to paint for us. When we were going through that whole thing in 2020. Oh, yeah, man. And then it goes back to that whole fear thing, dude, and keeping us locked in that reptilian brain and that lower vibration. And um, it all starts with knowledge, you know, so like this podcast presentation I gave and just just understanding the history of things and really looking at it. And that's kind of why I like to do things for the way I do, you know, academic base, you know, neutral so that it can hold up, you know, in a court of law to anybody. I mean, man, Carol Quigley himself told us, you know what I mean? Like if you don't, if you don't believe him, then shit, man, I can't help you, you know? Yeah. You don't, I go full homunculus on them, bro. I'll be like, you know what? It was the homunculus people, the <laughs> lizard people, but nah, dude, you killed it, man. This is really awesome and really fun. And I look forward to having you on again, bro. On and, and hope, Hurry up and finish that presentation so we can talk about consciousness and the lizard <laughs> people you, and all that stuff, bro. But yeah, I copped that hat, so I should be getting it soon. And hopefully I have it by next time you come on so I can I can match you, bro. But yeah, dude, hey. thank you for coming on my work. Where can people find your work and let them know your website, YouTube channel? How many subscribers you got now, bro? You're killing it. 13 point something. Nice. So Esoteric yeah, yeah. Eddie TV. Yeah. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Esoteric Eddie. Uh, post a lot of content on there, behind the scenes stuff, some funny, some serious. And of course, YouTube, Esoteric Eddie TV for all full length documentaries and videos. 
and um, my website. If you want to find my books and merch, go to esotericeddy.com. Right on. I'm going to put the links in that in the description for that. And Eddie, bro, you're my Mexican brother from another mother. And hopefully we'll see you again very soon, dude. Hey, adios. Peace. Through a past here and try to feed all to eat. We the last of a dying breed. Cause in a greed leads a path to a broken heart. In this art, it's deceit, never spoke of this keeping us all apart. Us in the dark with no sense of our identity. The industry puts too much energy into imagery. So what's the remedy? Bona fide pure chemistry. Three different minds of one entity. Son, we running this independently. Finna be the catch who bring rap back as dignity. By design, it's simply elementary. Mentally, we'll never move on through negativity. Cause with ability, there comes a certain sense of responsibility. You're feeling me? Uh, so let them know. All types exposed light through a mic device, display with words. Open the eyes of the disturbed. One step away from death or life, never concerned. It's all about yourself and the next man. Must understand in God's plan to walk hand in hand. I know about the long road that tests your soul. It's mind over matter, crap out, you're sure to fall. Exposed to the end of days, the wicked ways people pay. Karma's a bitch, so never play. So now at night when I pray, I pray for love, peace, and prosperity. And a little clarity, cause apparently. There's no one thinking coherently Everybody's running them up, don't give a fuck So we stuck, but I still try Still high, still struggle till the day I die Uh-huh, I know you feel it Constantly fighting my higher spirit Utilize your mind, you'll find that you can clear it You can't fear it, you gotta thrive with your spirit Only reason I'm living, cause I'm live with the lyrics So, so what's the difference between me and you? It's that I put my heart and soul in the things I do True I thought you knew Listen up, people, all you gotta do I'm not a baller, I gotta work hard for every dollar Doing a nine to five, plus I rhyme on the side I wanna holler, so I can keep it live for my people Ain't no reason to lie, yo, we strive through this evil At times it gets under my skin like a needle To the point I wanna beat you into a fetal position Cause y'all don't listen, you wanna battle But I ain't your opposition I'm on a mission, to break bread, play and make it for fun While these other cats fake it, try to take it and run I get it done, when I of the ten of y'all play dumb Yo, the scenario's this, your mind blitz From these so-called scholars who quote-unquote Think they spitting knowledge The fact of the matter, we come to shatter all fakeness Real cats, I for greenbacks, never mistake it Take it in love, or we take it in blood Either way, it ain't gon' matter, cause we taking them gloves off We step soft and carry a big stick All to E, this is it, and we came to represent like this So clear the way they just
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.